0: Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the architect Minoru Yamasaki is best known for his design for the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center, but his legacy is global. Here in Seattle, we encounter his designs in the Pacific Science Center, the IBM Building, and Rainier Tower. Yamasaki was born and raised here, and first experienced anti-Asian-American discrimination here. His rise above was pointed to as a rags-to-riches story. But in some respects, he was always othered. His name is not always listed or known in the pantheon of great American architects. Yamasaki's life and work is the subject of Seattle University philosophy professor Paul Kidder's new book, Minoru Yamasaki, and the Fragility of Architecture. In this talk, Kidder shares insights into how Yamasaki came to his art, one not universally appreciated, and the discrimination he faced. The fragility of structures as mammoth and iconic as the Twin Towers is tragically clear. Twenty years on from their destruction, this thoughtful reflection into the life of the man who envisioned them is illuminating. It provides historic context for how a utilitarian art form succeeds, fails, and defines our humanity. The L.A. Bay Book Company and the Seattle University College of Arts and Sciences presented this conversation on September 20th, it was moderated by Elliot Bay's Karen Maeda Allman.
1: Tonight, we're going to be um, presenting Dr. Paul Kidder. He has a PhD in philosophy from Boston College. He's been teaching at Seattle University since 1989. His specialties include metaphysics, Philosophy of Art and Architecture, Ethics in Urban Affairs. He also does some writing um, for Crosscut.com. You may have seen an article that he wrote earlier this year. Tonight, he'll be speaking about his book, Minoru Yamasaki and the Fragility of Architecture, which was published this year by Routledge Press. And this is published, yes, uh, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So this book expands our understanding of an important national architectural figure with significant roots and significant works in Seattle. He's a Japanese American and spent many of his early years here in Seattle. And uh, Dr. Kidder has spent over 10 years researching this book. He'll do a presentation with slides and images And also um, I will return about midway through the program to um, read some questions from the audience. And so thank you very much for joining us on behalf of the Elliott Bay Book Company and Seattle University's College of Arts and Sciences. I'd like to welcome Paul Kidder to the stage.
2: Thank you so much, Karen, and welcome everyone. It's so great to have you all here. Uh, I wanna give also a couple of particular shout outs. Uh, I want to uh, welcome my colleagues in an organization that's called Documentation and Conservation of the Modern Movement, or for short, Docomomo. We have some Docomomo participants, not only in Western Washington, but uh, from down the West Coast. I also want to give a special welcome to uh, my friends at the Mirabella Retirement Community. Uh, The topic of Yamasaki was the topic of the first lecture series that I gave at Mirabella, and uh, they've had me back many times since, so I'm grateful for their support over the years. In commemorating the events of September 11, 2001, as we have just done for the 20th time it is the loss of life and well-being that we must always proclaim as the paramount tragedy not only those who died on that day but those who suffered afterward from the effects and those who lost their limbs or lives in the costly wars that follow but it is not wrong to grieve as well the loss of the architecture in which so many souls had invested their creative powers and construction skills over a period of a decade. Not the least among these contributors was the architect, Minoru Yamasaki, whose story is striking in its ironies. He was among the most celebrated of architects in his day, but is now subject to unusual neglect. He is most famous not for buildings that stand, but for two projects that were destroyed, the Twin Towers and the pruitt Igo housing project in St. Louis. He was criticized for pursuing modernist minimalism, but equally when he sought to temper its austerity with delicacy and charm. He intended the Twin Towers as a symbol of peace, but they were frequently perceived as the opposite. He designed beloved buildings in Saudi Arabia, but his signature building was destroyed by Islamic militants. How might such ironies coalesce into a coherent picture of the man and his vision? After 9-11, I wanted to pursue that question further, but there were no books in print That treated his whole body of work and only one from 1979 written by the architect himself that attempted anything like an overview. I waited patiently for 10 years for somebody to write that book. Then then I began to suspect that some stigma was preventing it from happening. After all, Reams of books are published on all sorts of architects, many far less influential in their day than Yamasaki was. And meanwhile, my own personal connections to Yamasaki's architecture kept cropping up. I had loved his Pacific Science Center when I was a child, begging my mother for pennies to throw in its ubiquitous fountains. I found myself regularly changing buses near his IBM building and Rainier Tower during my commutes to Seattle University. I learned that he had spent his early youth just down the street from campus where the Japanese Baptist church that he attended continues to thrive. Yamasaki was a student at the University of Washington who later influenced its campus architecture, so that when I was a student there, I studied in buildings that imitated his style. Finally, I learned that I had spent the first years of my life in a housing project that he designed in St. Louis, the John Cochran Garden Apartments, where my father, served as a minister to the community of residents. It was as if Yamasaki had been following me around my whole life. So I decided to write the book that I wanted to read, but because I'm a philosopher rather than an architectural historian, this would be a highly reflective and interpretive study drawing on work that I have done in philosophy of architecture and ethics in urban affairs. The project involved archival research at the Library of Congress and several other locations, interviewing people who had worked with Yamasaki, including some who had gone on to great prominence, and traveling to buildings around the country to explore and photograph them. I put down the project for a couple of years when I learned that another scholar, Dale Geyer, would be coming out with a book. And he is an architectural historian and he sort of wrote the big book uh, on Yamasaki. And uh, he and I were in conversation and here he is with his two sons. He took me, he very generously took me around to look at buildings and uh, that was very fruitful. But when his book came out, I was still convinced that I was doing something different. So I I forged ahead and produced this book, Minoru Yamasaki and the Fragility of Architecture. When we go traveling to see great buildings, it is our curiosity that takes us there. Yet often it is something more than curiosity that is satisfied in the experience. It is our longing for a sense of rootedness and meaningful dwelling on earth. Meaning in traditional architecture is not hard to find. Colonnades and arches, walls and gateways, towers and domes are not only suggestive in their shapes and ornamentation, but have become sedimented with historical associations by virtue of their their persistent appeal over the centuries. That is why American architectural education well into the 20th century was based on developing skills of organizing and rendering classical forms. Yamasaki found at the University of Washington that to become an architect in the early 1930s was first of all a matter of learning how to stretch watercolor paper and to render imagery in washes and brushwork one sees uh, in his student renderings preserved in special collections at the university one sees classical forms in stone but also uh, a style called streamline modern, which is what counted uh, as mainstream modern architecture at the time. An aquarium and planetarium designed by Yamasaki in this style has a striking dome and imaginative gargoyles while on the floor of the aquarium sea life is rendered in delicate brush strokes, right? You have to be able to paint like that to be an architect. That, that's the way it was. It was only after graduating and seeking his fortune in New York City that the young architect discovered the work of the towering masters of the newer, more radical modernism. Uh, Walter Gropius, Le Corbusier, and his personal favorite, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe. Working in major architectural firms, he learned the new ways of stripped-down design, the concrete slab and the glass curtain wall. Becoming a true modernist, he came to see the decorative styles of his college years as something, he said, completely false. The Pruitt-Igoe Housing Project in St. Louis was a realization of this new modernism on a massive scale, replacing hundreds of units of tenement dwellings with sleek high rise buildings in a style that's generally called brick brutalism. Yamasaki won awards for his design, but within a couple of years after the completion of the project, he began to see it as a failure an ingenious vision, perhaps, but one that was so intent on manufacturing housing that it lost sight of the need for urban architecture to help build community. Over time, this failure became fully manifest to everyone with with life in the projects deteriorating to the point of being intolerable, leading to the ultimate demolition of the entire project. 50 years later, it remains largely an undeveloped site. Seeking to broaden his horizons and recover from stress and illness, in 1954, Yamasaki began traveling to explore the world's architecture. As few modernists had done at the time, he traveled to Japan touring buildings both famous and typical. The power of Japanese artistry, the meticulous craftsmanship, the integration of affective and spiritual meaning into every detail introduced new possibilities and standards into his imagination. Wanting to extend this exploration, he went on to encounter the treasures of Athens, Rome, and Venice. He visited China and India, marveling especially at the mysteries of the Taj Mahal. He found fascination in the great mosques of the Persian and Arab worlds. He came away with a profound sense of the richness of the world's architectural tradition, as if those watercolor images of his school days had come to life and were dancing before his eyes. These creations that had endured the centuries were brimming with meaning. They were not false, but spoke stunning truths, truths that suddenly seemed larger and deeper than the thin dogmas of modernism. They symbolized life and the perennial purposes of building with integrity, audacity, elegance, and exquisite detail. Out of such experiences was born his conviction that the modernists, having achieved a radical new conception of architecture, had yet to develop its full potential as a medium of meaning, as if they were speaking a new perfected language, but had not yet developed the vocabulary to say all of the countless things that a natural language can say. He believed that the techniques of modernism could now be adapted to any form to be found in the tradition and could, in a sense, do them better by making them more precise, sleek and graceful. Thus Lambert Airport in St. Louis, brought something new to airport design thin-shell concrete domes that soar like the paths of an airplane while recalling the vaults of grand old train stations. Robertson Hall at Princeton symbolizes the dignity of public service by recalling the Parthenon, but with graceful columns that sweep to an improbable pinch Near the top, the humanistic theme of dignity he carried even into the realm of commercial architecture, gracing the Northwestern National Life Insurance Company in Minneapolis with bookmatched marble reflection pools and a grand porch of soaring columns. The doge's palace in Venice came to hold a particular power over Yamasaki's imagination, with its simple geometry complemented by elaborate columns and uh, lively brickwork, its bulky upper stories raised aloft by delicate columns. In Yamasaki's buildings for Wayne State University, one begins to see modernized versions of the doge's columns and the roofline tiara. Then in the Pacific Science Center, he creates a full blown Venetian idol, complete with pointed arches, platforms floating in ubiquitous pools and fountains that freeze into ice sculptures in the winter. Japanese influences are everywhere in Yamasaki's designs. Some are relatively muted, as is in his common practice of creating overhanging roofs, seen here in the Horace Mann Educators Corporation building in Springfield, Illinois, and William James Hall at Harvard, or in the Japanese style of the walled garden uh, that surrounds the Detroit Society for Arts and Crafts building, And other Japanese references are more overt, such as the small office building that he did for the American Concrete Institute, looking a bit like a miniature pagoda, or the complex of buildings at the Oberlin Conservatory of Music that surround a traditional Japanese garden and koi-filled pond. Or certainly those projects where the architect was selected specifically for his heritage, such as the Japan Center in San Francisco. When in the late 1950s, Yamasaki was commissioned to design an airport in Dahran, Saudi Arabia He looked for inspiration in the architecture of mosques that he had seen throughout the Islamic world with their abstract patterns that nest within one another and create lively repeated patterns like music composed with underlying drones and steady beats. He met the desert conditions with columns that fan out into broad umbrellas, some of which form arches enclosing filigreed wall panels and with window surrounds. Upon its completion, the reigning monarch, King Saud, was said to have considered it the only modern building in the country that truly looked like a Saudi building. It appeared on the Saudi one real currency in two versions for a total of 15 years a kind of honor to be on the currency. The, the only non-industrial modern building on Saudi currency. And then it was replaced by another Yamasaki building, the Saudi Arabian Monetary Agency, this building. And I found it also on the 10 real note. Yamasaki's style of reinterpreting traditional forms became a paradigm for other modernists working in Arab nations. Through all of this innovation and interpretation, there were critics who decried these historical references as superficial and retrograde. Gordon Bunshaft, for example, of Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill, called him a mere decorator. And the Boston Globe's architecture critic, Robert Campbell in a 1993 column that cheered the demolition of Yamasaki's Eastern Airlines terminal at Logan Airport said his buildings were uh, usually just boxes with arches pasted on. Yet I have come to doubt that such critics were appreciative of the structural strategies that were actually at work or that they could see the dilemmas of modernism and history that he was trying to puzzle out. As inspired as the buildings that he, as inspired as Yamasaki was by the buildings that he explored in his world travels, there was one feature that held no appeal for him. And that is their association with cultures of domination and violence the castles with their heavy fortifications, the buildings meant to overawe the public so as to bring them under submission. Modern democratic cultures should aspire to something better than this crude kind of muscle flexing. Indeed, while modern life can be lauded for its acceleration of innovation and change, its manic pace creates a special need for places where one can find respite and become whole. Such buildings would be immediately and unapologetically appealing, attuning themselves to the course of light through the day and the seasons, forming a figure against the sky and establishing visual connections with the landscape. They would appeal by creating sensations of color and warmth By softening interiors and leaving them uncluttered so as to evoke a sense of elegance and calm. By laying out spaces in ways that would add interest, even intrigue, to one's movement through them. By connecting insides to outsides so that one could experience a building's natural setting from within it. The shorthand that eventually came to epitomize these features was the phrase, serenity, surprise, and delight. Widely recognized as one of the best realizations of these intentions is the McGregor Memorial Conference Center at Wayne State University. Its formal simplicity is complemented by intricate abstract patterns in the sculpting of the doors by the sculptor Lee Dussel, the metal screens in its arches and the patterns of light that are cast upon its interior of wood and stone. The liveliness of all this patterning is done with such a sense of complementarity that the resulting effect is one of balance and composure. The sculpture garden below the building designed with Edward Eichstätt extends this experience creating with mirror-like water surfaces that reflect the surrounding buildings and differently textured platforms a quiet intimacy and elegance in a near seamless integration of art and architecture. Two synagogues that Yamasaki designed have marvelous ways of combining grandeur with gentle calm. In North Shore Congregation Israel in Glencoe, Illinois of 1964, he achieved some of the most biomorphic effects in his work. An account in architectural record notes, the evocation of Art Nouveau in the space, seeing the shape of calla lilies in the vaults, palm fronds in the walls and artichoke leaves in the ogival windows running along the base. His thin but sturdy banisters swirl toward the organ loft like lines of melody. So captivating is the pattern of the windows and skylights in the sanctuary that the solid walls can seem almost incidental. And yet one knows that somehow they must be supporting the structure. In the entry to the sanctuary at Temple Beth-El, outside of Detroit, the element of surprise plays a particularly striking role. One moves from a low ceiling common area surrounded by gardens seen through glass to a small transitional space where one grasps one of the large handles of the doors to the sanctuary. And then suddenly, as one enters the door, the eyes soar up 70 feet an enormous skylight at the peak of a massive tent-like ceiling. The surprising transition underscores the large scale of this structure which was inspired by the imagery of the camps of the 12 tribes of Israel. The engineering of the space took its cue from tents as well, supporting the huge ceiling with two pairs of sloping concrete columns At either end, allowing the walls at the ground level to be made largely of glass, and thus further creating the feel of a structure that floats above the congregation. Some of the harshest criticisms of uh, Yamasaki's architecture take aim at his taste for delicate form. The designs were called fussy, lacy, prissy epicene, cosmetic. He was said to belong to the ballet school of architecture or the spun sugar school. Of the marble-clad columns at the base of his uh, Michigan consolidated gas tower in Detroit, Ada Louise Huxtable wrote, where the building needs to say strong, it says pretty. And in her damning 1966 assessment of the World Trade Center design, she pointed to an unsettling irony. Quote, here we have the world's daintiest architecture for the world's biggest buildings. Unquote. It was indeed partly for his sense of civilizing peace and delicate refinement that Yamasaki was selected to serve as the architect of the World Trade Center. It was thought by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey that his talent for serenity would soften the monumental scale of this massive project. The architect found the idea of building the world's tallest building altogether unappealing, but he hoped that by sending towers into the air, he could create open space that would provide a welcome respite from the density and frenzy of lower Manhattan streets. He took inspiration from both modern and historical sources, the twin towers of Mies van der Rohe's Lakeshore Drive apartments in Chicago, but equally the Renaissance Salvucci towers in the Tuscan town of San Gimignano. Like the doge's palace or many traditional mosques, rows of columns and pointed arches surrounded the base of the buildings. Such decorative elements were present less overtly than in some of his other designs because the scale and location of the building, Yamasaki thought, called for a quiet feel to the façade. In every part of the design, one can see his instincts for serenity at work, wanting these great commercial edifices to symbolize the hope that world trade would be a path to world peace. But symbols are unruly things. Their ambiguity is, of course, Their strength for the power of symbols comes from their ability to embody multiple meanings and multiple types of meaning, to participate in the meaningful cosmos at multiple levels of being. But by this same ambiguity, symbols, when there is some one thing that we want them to mean or need them to mean, will not obey. For many people, it was the pure geometry and scale of the Twin Towers that dominated their significance, symbols of unbridled, unbridled characterless ambition of global capitalism, such that when they were destroyed, it was a hard realization that they had meant for some Americans something like what they had meant for the terrorists. In the aftermath of 9-11, then, it was hard for them to be what we now most wanted them to be, a symbol of America for all Americans, the symbol that Yamasaki intended of dignity and world peace. The architect Stephen Hall often describes architecture as the most fragile of arts. And Yamasaki's tale is very much a tale of the fragility of architecture with that term interpretable in several senses. For one, the art is especially fragile in architecture because the artistic vision of the project labors under the constraints of the program, the budget, the availability of materials and a host of related conditions. Fragility can also be seen in the duties to which architecture is pledged. The other arts flourish and survive because they are housed in buildings, but architecture must face the elements. Buildings, moreover, are common victims of violence. Indeed, every war is in part a war on architecture. And then there is the fragility of the architect's legacy, so clearly observable in the uncertain future that Yamasaki's surviving works face. All of these ways of hearing and applying the word fragility are, of course, negative in connotation. Fragility as weakness, vulnerability, mortality. But there is also a highly affirmative sense to that word that is the most intriguing and illuminating sense when applied to Yamasaki's case, for he embraced the fragile values of peace, humanism, democracy, and civilization, and sought to create their corollaries in designs of gentle grace and cultural appreciation. These designs are no less worthwhile, I believe, for embracing fragility. Indeed, it is here that the two sides of the significance of Yamasaki's buildings, their aspirations to elegant, intimate beauty, and their mortal, sometimes tragic fate, seem to come together. For what is more achingly beautiful than the gentle glories of this world felt with a full sense of their passing? Tales of the destruction of buildings, as they recall the surprising fragility of architecture, can evoke a deeper, more heartfelt sense of what is precious about them. Precious is one of those words that is used in architecture as an insult, a word that many critics would not hesitate to attach to the works of Yamasaki, seeing in that word another descriptor of his superficiality. Yet is it not among the most profound of existential truths that one may ponder that life is precious is it not in our openness to this truth that we are most in tune with what is rich and beautiful in this world? Thank you.
1: What a wonderful presentation. I have to say that before reading your work and hearing you speak, I I had no idea um, who, who Yamasaki was. And you have provided so much context for really understanding him. Let's talk a little bit about Yamasaki's upbringing here in Seattle. Um, you did some pretty extensive research in that and we didn't get to hear too much. So I think this is a good time to hear a little more about that.
2: Uh, yeah, so, uh, so he's part of the uh, Japanese American community in the 1920s in Seattle. And uh, he described living in the Northwest as an Asian American, as uh, being like uh, being Black in the South. The prejudice was just virulent. And it was something that was experienced as profoundly oppressive. And so he went to New York to uh, get make it, right? Make it in the big city. Mm-hmm. But he uh, also did it to escape the Northwest and get out of here. And um, during his time at the University of Washington, he made the money to support his education by working in the canneries in Alaska during the summers. And the conditions there, especially for an Asian American, were horrendous. They bordered on slavery. And uh, he gives an autobiographical statement in his book, A Life at Architecture, one quarter of that statement is devoted to describing those horrible conditions in Alaska. That's how deeply uh, it had impressed him. And I read that as an occasion where he it, it cured him of any kind of uh, inclination to prejudices of his own. Uh, and two, it put him on this path of, I don't want anything to do with violence. I don't want anything to do with abuse, like in the way I run my office, uh, I don't want any kind of domination to go on there. And I don't want this. I want the symbolism. I don't want violence in the symbolism of my architecture. So uh, so that's one side of it. And then the there's the prejudice that followed him all through his career. So for example, he, he opened a firm in uh, Detroit, but uh, he was redlined in Detroit. He couldn't, uh, he couldn't buy a house in the neighborhoods in which he was building houses or designing houses, right? Uh, and uh, there, there's just, uh, you know, you know the story is that uh, the, the prejudice is just part of the fabric of your life. And uh, you, you kind of work around it. But Yamasaki didn't like the story of, you know, here's, here's the person who succeeded against impossible odds he didn't like that story. He didn't like the Horatio Alger story, even though he won an Horatio Alger award. Uh, so uh, he, he really liked to emphasize the, the opportunity.
1: Uh, we have a question from Jason Wirth. Um, did Yamasaki oops, know other Seattle artistic luminaries like Paul horiuchi Fujitaro Kobota, George Sudakawa, and others?
2: Uh, yes, uh, but I don't know how many, uh, but he was uh, uh, he was uh, a classmate with uh, Sudakawa and they corresponded uh, over the years. And uh, there is a building in, of all places, I visited a building in Toledo, Ohio, which has a large Sudakawa struck a fountain, one of his great Mm -hmm. fountains out in front of it. And, uh, and that was one collaboration, but I know from correspondence that I saw that there were, there were other works, other collaborations that didn't pan out, but they were always talking about it. So uh, there really is a a great uh, Sudakawa uh, connection and, uh, and, 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 But there are more connections with Northwest uh, architects that you don't hear about. That uh, there are people that were in his program, uh, Japanese Americans, whom he hired uh, back in in Detroit. And I met one of those.
1: Um, I think, let's see, we have... um... A question from Glenn Hughes What were Yamasaki's favorite building materials? And was he constrained by financial concerns sometimes from using materials he would like to have used? Mm.
2: Well, that's the great question about the the budget (laughs) Uh, that every architect has to uh, wrestle with every day, right? Is that how can you do something really creative and not blow the budget? And Yamasaki was really dedicated to that. Uh, And so he wanted, he liked to use fine materials like marble and wood. Uh, And, but he was judicious about how he used them. You know, you, you, you put them in the places that people are really going to experience them. Uh, And then he looked for materials that would allow you to do very creative things. And so this, um, this business of uh, pre-stressed, pre-cast concrete uh, was a new sculptural form. If you look at those arches of the Pacific Science Center, those are made in a factory, uh, in a place where you can control the setting up of the concrete, you could shake it, to shake all the bubbles out of it. So it is incredibly strong and, uh, it could be very thin. See, that's why he thought, oh, the moderns could do arches even better because we can make them really thin and you know, just, just air, air-like, right? You know, it's like Saint-Chapelle, but, you know, at another level. Uh, and, uh, and this pre-stressed concrete, uh, was a key for him to become sculptural. And I spoke with, uh, One of the people who worked in the office and uh, this guy said, well, a lot of designers left Yama's office when he started doing that precast concrete. (laughs) And I said, I said, but why? It, It gives you so much creative control. You know, you can do so much with it. And he said, it gave Yama a lot of creative control. (laughs) <laughs> ah. see, it's a, it was like it allowed him to be the sculptor see and sculpt the whole building and the other folks in the office didn't have as much of a role then see so uh, so that was the magic for him was that he went wild with that for a while and then he got this all this this torrent of criticism uh for being a decorator see and that's when he started pulling back uh, from that, and he started to emphasize structure on the outside of the building more. See, See? so as to say, I'm not a decorator; I'm showing, I'm expressing the structure of the building. And the IBM building in Seattle is a great example of that, because the pinstripe columns that are on the exterior of that building are actually helping to hold the building up. You're seeing the structure; it's not a decoration. I mean, it's decorative. And also those big Roman arches that are at the base of the building. Those are decorative. They're not a decoration. They're helping to hold the building up. Uh, so, uh, so he he explored these new materials, these economical but highly expressive materials. Uh, and then he kind of shifted more towards uh focusing on uh expressing the structure. You now,
1: uh I think that I was reading that he had maybe a larger vision for that, uh, for Fifth Avenue with the, um, the IBM building nearby and also Rainier Tower. And that was quite controversial at the time. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that controversy.
2: Yeah, it's something that I get into late in the book. Uh, and then when Knut Berger wrote about the book, He got into that too. So it's quite Mm -hmm. a piece of legendary Seattle uh, uh, lore that there was a a building, a series of buildings that took up the entire block uh, at the site of the Rainier Tower and Plaza that uh, was to be knocked down so I could build this new modern building. And it was at the beginning, it was in the 70s, as at the beginning of uh, the activism for preservation in Seattle. So there was a powerful preservation movement that was started to block Yamasaki's project. And uh, it was led by uh, Victor Steinbrook, who had been a classmate of Yamasaki and had even worked for Yamasaki for a year or so in Detroit. See? So here's these uh, two old buddies who are at each other's throats. You know, I found some letters exchanged, you know, uh, over this controversy, but it really epitomizes the kind of this, this turning point where the modernism meets preservationism and really raises this question about what kind of city do we want? How do we want to connect to our heritage. So of course, as with all modernists, now the shoe is on the other foot, right? Because we have to decide whether we're going to preserve Yamasaki's buildings. And uh, we've decided with that one that we'll save the tower and uh, get rid of the plaza. So we
1: uh, So We have a question. Brangie from- and
2: Davis said oh. it was a the plaza got stomped by that big kinky boot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we have a question from Eugene Wu. Um, what do you think other architects and architectural critics were so critical of his design? So was it jealousy, racism, just couldn't see his vision. What do you think it was?
2: Uh, oh, well, uh, uh, I, I first I want to say this is one of the really Uh, unusual things about this uh, project has been that I'm trying to write about and trying to appreciate and understand this architect with uh, reams of virulent criticism in my head, right? That from all of these voices that didn't just criticize Yamasaki's architecture, they really trashed him. And uh, I think that has prevented us from trying to get deeply into what he was trying to do because the voices of the critics just come in and say, it's not worth it. It's not worth even asking what that is. And uh, so uh, why, your question, why so much criticism? Well, I mean, an obvious answer would be that he was interpreted as retrograde that here he's supposed to be a modernist. And what's he doing with these Roman arches and Gothic arches, and he's, he's going backwards. He's not going forwards. He's betraying the cause. And there was a kind of moral imperative, you know, in those days about modernism. And he's, you know, he's a counter-revolutionary. He's, really, he's just not on board. So that's a way to put it. But I've, uh, I've tried to put a little, some raise some of these other questions about race and gender and uh, violence. Uh, So that uh, uh, he, he was criticized for being feminine. His architecture is feminine. Isn't that a horrible thing to be, for a building to be feminine? Isn't that an awful thing to be? You shouldn't have any feminine buildings. So uh, listening to this, listen to this, you know, is prissy, it's fussy, it's epicene. you know. Uh, oh, I didn't know that being feminine was a terrible thing to be. And uh, I think it's part of this. Uh, I think there's a lot of symbolism in this, you know, that a building has to be strong. It has to be male. It has to be masculine on the outside. It can be feminine on the inside. Because right, that's protected. Uh, so I, I'm, just, I'm just toying with these ideas that was it, was it I curiously sexist? Um, and then uh, some of you may know Bill Bain, the legendary uh, architect in Seattle who worked with Yamasaki on the Seattle projects. He said to me, you know, people said Yamasaki's architecture was feminine, but I, I what I really think it was was Japanese. And now look how the, how the criticisms get more complicated because it's Americans perceiving Japanese form as feminine. And there seems to be like perhaps a kind of compound prejudice in that perception. So I've tried to be subtle about this in the book, but I'm trying to put an edge on this. You know, I'm trying to push back. Just to get a hearing, right? I'm trying to. So, so I have this subtle thing, you know, going kind of under the surface is saying, well, if you don't like Yamasaki, is it possible that you do, you don't like it because, you know, you're a racist masculist with a, a perverse taste for brutality? i just maybe. Could it be? I'm just raising the possibility, right? <laughs> but I, you, I have to push back in order to to feel like uh, I'm doing something worthwhile, right?
1: So maybe Orientalism of its own kind of. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All that. So we have an interesting question from Walter Hatch. Hey Paul, what does your background in philosophy, particularly phenomenology contribute to your analysis of architecture, including Yamasaki's work?
2: Okay, great. Thank you. Um, well, uh, Philosophy of architecture. The way I do philosophy of architecture is I focus on meaning, and that's the theme that came up in my presentation. That um, you know you can have a wonderful, beautifully designed, marvelously functional refrigerator, right? And that's a great thing. Uh, but uh, I hope that we look for something more in architecture than to be a mere appliance, although. A lot of time when we talk about buildings, we talk about them like refrigerators, right? So I'm looking for that further dimension. The thing that we all get on airplanes to go see in other parts of the world, it's the meaning. It's uh, every building is a philosophy in a way. It speaks a different language. It, It communicates in a different way than philosophy. But I see all buildings as... Attempts to try to figure out and express what it means to dwell as a human being on earth in this universe. Uh, and I think one of the things that gave me a kind of affinity to what Yamasaki was doing is he was in touch with that. He was trying to make buildings that were enjoyable and, uh, and humanistic and all that. But he also said, it has to have a cultural concept. There has to be some search for meaning going on in this building. And I like that. Uh, Yeah. And I think that's what philosophy of architecture is all about. And uh, when I say that, that I say that architecture is about meaning, that's what brands me as an existential phenomenologist. Uh, Because that's what we're about, existential meaning. And uh, also uh, hermeneutics, to use another uh, technical word, that's the philosophy of interpretation. And as I'm interpreting Yamasaki, I'm trying to figure out how you interpret buildings, how you interpret architecture. So the interpretive questions are also philosophical questions.
1: Well, I think you have a lot of common cause with um, the the architectural historians and people are interested in historic preservation in the audience. And I know there are quite a few um, because I think maybe that undergirds some of the reason that people even do this, this work, you know, from whatever direction.
2: You don't, you don't preserve old buildings just because they're pretty because we can make more pretty buildings, right. Or just because they're, they're functional. Well, they're not as functional as they were. And yet we want to preserve them. And I think that's the meaning dimension. And it ties into our history.
1: And an interesting question, a couple back from Susan Boyle, who wants to know, um, and this is, I'm going to combine a couple of questions. Um, we had another audience member that wanted to know if if Yamazaki had a um, background in structural engineering. And then also Susan wanted to know, did he have favorite uh, structural engineers that he liked to work with.
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, when he was at University of Washington, he was good at structural engineering, and he was didn't think he was doing very well at painting. <laughs> and he went to the legendary teacher there, his teacher, Lionel Pries. I don't know if any of you know that, oh, yes. but Jeffrey Oxner at uh, University of Washington has written a magnificent book on the teacher Lionel Prees. and uh i have uh, uh, jeffrey was very helpful to me and he even edited my part of the book that was uh mm-hmm. on on Prees, just make sure i got it right yeah. and uh, yeah. uh but but uh, he went Yamasaki went to Prees and said uh i think i need to switch to engineering because that's what i'm good at and prees uh, talked him out of it. He said, no, 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 you're going to do fine. You're going to, you're going to be one of the best students come out of this program. So, so he had this affinity to engineering, and then he latched on to great engineers. So uh, Albert Yee was uh, this fellow who was master of concrete and uh, uh, Anton Tedesco, the, sh- the thin-shelled concrete roofs. And uh, the person that he worked most successfully with, though, was John Skilling in Seattle. And Skilling was the person he worked with to develop these uh, tube, tube forms, uh, like the IBM building, the, the, the new way for the exterior of the building have a lot of glass, but still hold the building up. And then that was what was used for the World Trade Center. And then Skilling came to him on the uh, Science Center. Uh, Yamasaki had this idea for those arches and that they would be very thin. And Skilling said, uh, looked at the design Yamasaki had and said, I think we can make them thinner. And Yamasaki said, I've never heard an engineer say that before. (laughs) You could go better. (laughs) They always say, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. So Skilling was, uh, and then they worked on the World Trade Center together uh, until they had a falling out that I don't quite understand. Uh, And uh, of course, Skilling was the one who who worked with Yamasaki to make the pedestal for the, the Rainier Tower, and they both claimed that it was their idea. So Skilling, and then uh, and then Leslie Robertson was the one who took over in uh, the World Trade Center. He was also a Seattle guy. He was working for Skilling's firm in Seattle. And then as a young man, he was taken on to this World Trade Center park. Imagine that, you know, you're starting your career as an engineer and your first job is the World Trade Center. Uh, so it was just a profound experience for him uh, and, uh, and Robertson went on to, you know, found he stayed in New York and founded one of the most important structural engineering firms in the world. And I, um, uh, I had a chance to interview him before he died and his devotion to Yamasaki was just a deep, 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 uh, just this gratitude. And when Yamasaki was, uh, in, uh, Uh, the hospital in New York, uh, Sloan Kettering Cancer Institute, um, Leslie Robertson went to visit him every day after work until he died. And uh, he said that that was the least I could do to express my gratitude to him. So uh, in in short, Yamasaki got along with uh, structural engineers. Uh, it It was a great thing. And they liked him because he thought that Every aspect of engineering is part of design. That is the engineer is every bit as much a designer as the designer because it all has to be integrated, right? And the more the engineer is is not in conflict with the designer, but they're working together, you're going to get, everything's going to be better.
1: One more comment came through, um... From Miguel Santos, thank you so much for your lecture, Paul, seeing those interior photos of Temple Bethel. I couldn't help but notice the similarity of curves leading to the ridge skylight with Calatrava's oculus skylight in the World Trade Center path station. couldn't help but wonder if that was an homage to Yamazaki.
2: Yeah, boy, I've wondered that, too. I did. I have not pursued it, but I have... I have wondered about that as well. Uh, Since since 9-11, I have occasionally, I've started to see in a number of places, things that look to me like homages. Um, There are buildings, you see them with little tridents Mm -hmm. on them. There was a library that was recently done in Birmingham, England, that looks to me, and other people have commented on this, although I haven't tracked it down, it looks like an homage to an office building that Yamasaki did for the Reynolds Metals Company in uh, near, outside of Detroit. So um, so I, I think there are these, uh, there are possibly these things going on. Um, and I what I wanted, if my book has any influence on the discussion, I hope it would be to say that that's okay. That uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, making those kinds of uh, references to what he was trying to do. I hope it's not just an imitation, but it's an understanding of the, of the project.
1: I'm wondering if there are um, any protégés uh, of Yamasaki working today or other people carrying his ideas forward or building on his ideas that you'd you'd like to speak, speak to?
2: Uh, so uh, let me broaden the the category a little bit and say I, I mean another thing about Yamasaki is that he along with Philip Johnson uh, and a couple of others um, Edward Durrell Stone, Welton Beckett. This is a group of architects that are credited with creating a style of architecture. It's called new formalism. And uh, if you look around cities, certainly Seattle, uh, there are plenty of buildings all over the place that are done in this style, new formalism. And once I learned how to recognize it, I just started seeing it everywhere. But nobody talks about it. And I can't imagine an architect who would say today, I'm going to build a new formalist building. I'm going to design a new formalist building. And I think that's part of the stigma around Yamasaki and these others is that's considered so out that you wouldn't dare do it. So are there architects working in Yamasaki style? If there are, they're not admitting it. So again, I wanna say, let's, uh, let's be open to the possibility that of all the, you know, the thousands of different kinds of stylistic things that are happening in architecture, uh, maybe, maybe new formalism would be an option. Maybe that'd be okay, but we're done. Uh, brilliantly, uh, the way Yamasaki sometimes could do it.
1: Um, I'd like to uh, bring in one last question um, and also to say that um, copies of Paul Kitter's book will be available at the Elliott Bay Book Company. It is available as an ebook, as well as paperback, and also a hardcover library edition. I put the link in the chat if you'd like to order. We had a little delay in receiving our books. But we will, and this we will receive them. And this is a very worthy and interesting read. Um, so, one last question: um, You have some really haunting passages about um, his beautiful work in Saudi Arabia. And Wendy wanted to know about the dis- destruction of a building in the Middle East that that you mentioned. And does it have, so, so she was asking about that.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, I, his, his, his buildings in Saudi Arabia, uh, as far as I know, still stand. Uh, but, uh, but there's this whole, the irony that I pointed out is that, uh, you know, that it was, it was Islamists who, uh, destroyed the world trade center. Now, Shortly after 2001, September 11th, a journalist by the name of Lori Kerr wrote an article for Slate where she argued that Yamasaki, having worked in Saudi Arabia, incorporated lots of Saudi Arabian uh, decorative themes into the World Trade Center. And that uh, the way she put it was that he had clothed these monuments to Western capitalism in the raiment of Islamic spirituality. And when you go through visually, you can see that there are uh, Arab influences on the design of the World Trade Center. They're just visually undeniable. And so this is partly what intrigued me about it, What uh, would, would Osama bin Laden have a special animus? This is what she was saying to those buildings because of the way they look. But in the course of my research, uh, I came to the conviction that uh, that uh, yeah, there there is Islamic form in the World Trade Center design. There's just as much Gothic, Venetian Gothic, just as much Japanese. It was he he just poured it all in. Right. He he was drawing from everywhere by then. You know, he was just taking from everywhere. So it wasn't in it wasn't a particularly Arab building, although you can visually you can find those things. And on the other side, um, you never found in anything that Osama bin Laden said or any of the conspirators said uh, a specific uh, complaint that those were, you know, that he stole our imagery or something like that. So, But it is very interesting that uh, that irony really uh, is, persists, not simply that he had designed uh, buildings in Saudi Arabia, but that they were so celebrated. I've gone through and I have discovered lots of different modern buildings from that period that are trying to do in the Arab world what Yamasaki was trying to do.
1: And maybe that's his vision going forward, then, in a in a new way. Could be. So, so, thank you so much for this this wonderful lecture. Thank you, everyone who attended, for your for your good attention, your great questions. And uh, if you enjoyed this, um, this program is being recorded. It will be closed captioned and will appear on the Seattle University's VMO channel, and we'll also link to it as well. The book, again, is Dr. Paul Kidder's book, Minoru Yamazaki and the Fragility of Architecture, published by Routledge. Thank you so much. Thank
2: you, everyone, for being here. It was such a treat.
1: Yes, and if Feel you have more delight. questions, reach out to him. He's got a lot to say about um, archival research, and and I look forward to more talks from you on this wonderful book. And if you're interested in talks about architecture, maybe we'll be able to do some more. But um, also look to our friends at Seattle Architecture Foundation and also Historic Seattle. They have some wonderful talks. Many of them are online and also check out their um, holdings on YouTube.
2: And I will be speaking in January at Mohai.
1: Mohai, another great source of information. And we'll be talking
2: then just about Seattle buildings. Our focus will be Seattle buildings and the Seattle history of Yamasaki.
1: So thank you very much and um, take care everyone. Stay safe and hope to see you at another conversation soon.
0: The Elliott Bay Book Company and the Seattle University College of Arts and Sciences presented this conversation on September 20th. To find the full event, and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org slash speakers. While you're there, you can subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.